Jew, Hofstra University in Hempstead, New York, this is Getting to the Root, a weekly podcast that brings community voices to center stage and sheds light on issues you may not see on the nightly news. I'm Alexandra Whitbeck, and on this episode of Getting to the Root, you'll hear from freelance journalist for The Guardian and Hofstra journalism student Amdala Ajasa, who discusses balancing both her busy life and reporting about the current Derek Chauvin murder trial in Minneapolis. Next, you'll hear from Katrina O'Brien with more information about PPEs. This week, Katrina spoke with investigative reporter and environmental journalist Carl Grossman on how PPE pollution has been affecting the shore of Southampton and what the community and the legislators are doing to combat this issue. Lastly, hear from journalist Julio Ricardo in his discussion with Mario Murillo about a new podcast called La Brega that unearths the before untold stories of Puerto Rico ranging from the people to the island and understanding the complexities in each. I'm Alexandra Whitbeck and welcome to Getting to the Root. Here is my discussion with Amdalap. Tell me the story about how you began at The Guardian. I got started at The Guardian through a Facebook post that was made under the Twin Cities Black Journalist site by one of the people that manages the site. I was awarded the Twin Cities Black Journalist Award this year, so I was able to do an internship, a paid internship this fall, and then they made the posting basically saying, hi, The Guardian is looking for people to cover the trial, the Dirk Talvin trial that's happening since I'm in Minnesota, and um, obviously we watched George Floyd die for eight minutes and 46 seconds, so if you're available to report for them or do anything like that, reach out to this person. So I reached out to the guardian person and I was basically like, I'm a full-time student and I don't know if I would be able to cover the trial, like the openings and the closings and all the evidence because I have class, but I have written about the protests and the social activism around the city. And that's kind of my niche and I would love to help in that way and I didn't even think I would get a response mind you I was sitting here like there's no way that this guardian lady is going to email me back Um, but she did and she said oh and in the email I had included my website some of my other stories just things like that and she emailed me back saying I would love to get on a phone call with you so we talked for an hour and then she was like okay so can you have your this was a Wednesday, mind you. And she's like, so can you have your first story done by Saturday? And (laughs) it was done. Um, And then I did a news story following that. And I even did a breaking news story where she put me on deadline for three hours. She was like, the protest starts at 8am. I need you to go um, do some interviews about five people. And then I need you to write a story and send it back to me by 11. So that was probably one of the most stressful points, but that was also just so rewarding to go out there, do it, get it done, send it in, and it be published. Wow, that's such an amazing story. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you so, so much. I'm still in shock myself. So like you mentioned, what is it like working for The Guardian and um, attending Hofstra online, especially from states away? Um, Being remote this year kind of sucked at first if I'm being honest obviously I chose to be remote second first semester because of the pandemic and then second semester it was similar it was 
similar circumstances, but it, I did kind of want to go back. So I was a little bit bummed that I was staying home this semester. Um, and it just made it worthwhile. I think it's an amazing experience to be able to be on Zoom and be a full-time student and then get off of Zoom and then be a professional freelance reporter for The Guardian. It's kind of an interesting, it's an interesting world between, okay, I'm a student and I'm learning about journalism in my classes and my teachers are teaching me phenomenal, phenomenal things to, oh, I'm actually a, I'm actually a, an international reporter now and I need to go <laughs> cover this story and I have to go get quotes and I have to go set the scene for this international audience. It's, it's very shocking. It's very, it's interesting, but I've been able to balance it thus far. And is there anything that you learned at Hofstra that particularly has applied to the work that you're doing now? Anything that maybe like stands out? I mean, obviously it's reporting and that's, I'm a journalism major. So a lot of the techniques with getting people to talk to you about sensitive subjects, um, the taking notes while you're interviewing, the obviously the language when you're writing your story, all of it has been applicable. I was just wondering if you could also talk um, more about your one piece, uh, Minneapolis on Trial. My editor at the Guardian, Joanna, she told me that for my first story, because she had seen what I had written for the Chronicle, and then she also went on my website. So she just saw my entire journalism portfolio in general. And she told me she wanted a personal account. She said, I want it to not be an op-ed. It's going to be semi-featurey, but it's going to be a personal narrative about your year. Uh, she was like, you kind of had interesting circumstances. You were sent home due to COVID-19, and then months later, you were dropped in one of the largest civil rights movements since the 60s, and it's been a full year, right, about that, and I was like, okay, so she gave me some guidance about how to set that up, because I had never really written a personal narrative style piece to be published um, in a in a multimedia format. So I, it was a little challenging because I just have never written anything like that, but she was like, just write your truth, write about what happened to you. And I did that and it got very minor edits. She said she sent it to her boss's boss and she was like, he changed maybe a few words, but for the most part, like it was just all of my writing. I put my heart on the line and it was really well received, which is really nice. Um, so how has your view of journalism changed in the past month since starting with The Guardian, like um, going from Hofstra to, like you said, just a bigger stage, I suppose? It's just so, I don't even know the word, but, you know, I'm a junior journalism major at Hofstra and I play that role in class. And then I'm talking to Joanna as a professional reporter and I'm writing things that are going to be seen around the world like it's it's an interesting shift for sure it really happened so quickly too like one day I like I said I was a student and then the next day my journal my guardian piece was published and I was an international writer and 
Then I was having outlets reach out to me. So I had this New Zealand radio station after reading my first story, reach out to me to do an interview. So I interviewed with them. And then I had the BBC ask me to do an interview with them. Um, and it's shocking. It's, it's exciting. I really feel like I've been sprung into my career almost already. Like I feel like I'm, while still a student, partially in the career that I'm training to be in. Wow. So, and what are your plans for the future, do you think? Um, my goal is to be an on-air broadcast reporter. Um, but a lot of people say that my writing is really strong. So <laughs> I keep getting these writing opportunities, which I'm grateful for. So uh, anything that's related to reporting. You know, I think... Hofstra does its best to prepare us and they have done their best to prepare their students. And it's just a completely different world actually being one of the reporters and actually being out there and doing it um, more professionally, like as a job almost, because this isn't an internship, this is a job. What My writing for The Guardian is a job. Um, and it's just really nice because I felt like I was prepared for it but I mean they can't there's certain things that you just can't teach that you learn along the way so in in essence this is kind of another teaching and learnable experience and the school has been very supportive um, my teachers have been very encouraging and yeah I, my guardian writer has also been a she's been amazing she's also been a form of teacher and person that's been able to guide me through this. And this is a very, I think, unusual circumstance, but um, I kind of thank the pandemic because if not for it, I wouldn't have the opportunity that I have now to be at home studying remotely and able to do this as well. I love that point of view. That's such an optimistic point of view. Um, I also was kind of wondering how has being at home changed anything? Because I know especially the campus life compared to home life must, just, must be drastically different. It is very drastically different to be home compared to being on campus. I don't walk between classes. I don't get to walk, you know, into the Lawrence Herbert School. I don't get to walk past ABP to go into the business buildings. I am in my room, normally doing classes on my bed. And it's, they're not comparable. I mean, obviously we're getting an education and we're learning, but the, the situations aren't comparable. Um, it, it really feels like I was sprung into more of a real life because on top of being at home, I do work. So when I'm at, when I'm at school, I normally just work in admissions and that's the only job that I do. Um, because school is a top priority, but now that I'm home and I'm doing a full, a full course load, it's like, okay, well, I probably should be doing something on top of that. So I have jobs and now I'm freelancing for the guardians. I, I've definitely taken on a lot, a lot more than I think I would have if I were on campus. So I'm the president of black student union. I started a black movement called black leaders advocating for change. And we have multiple meetings each week with different administrative figures in order to get our demands met to make campus more inclusive for black students. Um, on top of that, I 
am the race, gender, and identity editor for the Hofstra Clock Tower, which I'm very active in. I wrote a couple pieces just a week before my Guardian um, job began. Um, I still work in admissions, even remotely. I'm still an anchor, a national news anchor for the Hofstra Today show. So it's, I think it's kind of crazy because I don't know if I would have taken on all of this if I were on campus, but it's definitely helped me feel like I was still involved in campus life despite not being physically on campus. Uh, yeah, sleep and I aren't friends, so. <laughs> well, I hope that changes soon and I hope you have a great day. Thank Again, thank you so much. All right, you too. Continue to listen in the coming weeks for updates from Umdala about the Derek Chauvin murder trial and the fight for justice for George Floyd. Now, here's Katrina O'Brien in the fourth part of her series on PPEs on Long Island. Yeah, I, I think it's horrible. I mean, you go to uh, the post office, for example, I go to the post office here where I live and you see uh, sometimes masks, certainly lots of these plastic gloves just scattered, you know, littered. Uh, it's just, uh, and you don't want to pick them up because uh, you kind of don't know. But I think it has to be considered in the uh, the bundle of the litter that's produced in the United States uh, every year. Hello everyone and happy Tuesday. This is Katrina O'Brien from Getting to the Root where the community voice matters. So far along my series, I've spoken to two organizations, the Citizens Campaign for the Environment and Grassroots Environmental Education, talking about how medical waste and PPE pollution is reaching an all-time high here on Long Island, adding to a problem that hasn't been solved yet. This episode, I'll be speaking to an investigative reporter and environmental journalist for over a decade, Carl Grossman, discussing how Long Island officials could start creating new solutions to the problem of medical waste and PPE pollution. I mean, here's a, I was looking at a report from the British Broadcasting Corporation. This was made in 2019. And unfortunately, I don't think things have changed other than some of the litter now yeah. is talking about PPE. It's a, it says the world produces over 2 billion tons of municipal solid waste every year per head of population, the worst offenders are the US. Uh, Americans produce three times the global average of waste, including plastic and food. When it comes to recycling, the United States lags behind other countries, only reusing 30% of solid waste. I mean, to me, it's, it's, it's the bigger issue. I mean, this stuff could be potentially uh, of uh, COVID passing, COVID, you know, it, it could be uh, could be deadly theoretically, if not practically. Uh, but you gotta, I think, see it as uh, uh, another example of uh, here in the United States, uh, litter just uh, despite beautify America and all these efforts through the uh, decades. Still, I mean, you look along the sides of highways. Uh, you uh, look at dumpsters at, uh, at, uh, at various businesses and see that you're kind of overflowing with, uh, with litter and you got to wonder where they're going to go, where that 
trash is going to go considering that like from Long Island, most of the trash or much of the trash ends up in landfills upstate New York and in Pennsylvania, which is not particularly sustainable. So again, I think the bigger picture is even worse than the PPEs being, uh, being dumped. Wearing PPE equipment, such as single-use masks and gloves, has become the new normal when it comes to protecting yourself from the exposure to the coronavirus. However, as people are using protective equipment now more than ever, tons of improper disposed trash has been washing up on the shores of the town of Southampton, where Grossman lives, raising high concern not only to him, but to the community as well. Which leads to the question, should officials develop a new form of recycling and disposal bins for PPE equipment to lower the rise of pollution here on Long Island? And outside the doctor's office, it's a, a number of medical practices in this building are a bunch of um, uh, little cabinets with uh, the symbol for uh, toxic waste. In other words, it's separated out. So it would be a variety of, uh, of blood and stuff they might have taken from people for testing and uh, other bodily fluid and so forth. But in any case, it's separated out from other, other ways. But these, uh, these masks that, uh, that are just discarded on the street and parking lots, these gloves, I mean, they're not separated out. Uh, and uh, I, I pity the, the garbage people, the sanitation people. Mm-hmm. Up, uh, I'm sure they're wearing gloves, but still. Uh, and then the whole, oh, God, the whole process. I, I, I kind of doubt that that stuff is sent to, um, like, where the doctors send, you know, uh, or when the stuff that's being used in a in a doctor's office uh, goes somewhere. I think they probably take real care to care to isolate it from other waste. But I suspect this stuff is not isolated from other waste. And then it ends up, uh, oh, in that process. And uh, if it's infilled, I mean, it's, it's, it's really a problem. Local officials in Southampton also ask for the residents' help. When you see something, say something, as they strongly recommend residents to call when they notice areas that have PPE pollution. Residents will also be able to report problem areas using the SOS system available on the town's website. SOS, also known as Southampton Online Solutions, is a web-based platform designed by the town a few years ago to log in and track citizen complaints and concerns. By using this platform, a resident can alert the town of a problem and place it on the map. So the location is clear to the responding department. The SOS system will also be modified to have a special checkbox for reporting litter issues. Here's another article. This is from National Geographic. Uh, top of the plastic trash heap. Uh, new research shows the United States is the largest producer of plastic waste in the world. And then here's a chart, United States, top, top of the list, in total plastic waste generation. This is 2016 with 42 million metric tons. And then next, uh, India, but that's a poor country, you know? I mean, it's, it's difficult for India to handle waste. Uh, Absolutely. 
China is the next, Brazil is the next, Indonesia is the next, Russia is the next, um, Germany is the next, but uh, then you go to this other chart, per capita plastic waste generation. And again, the United States right up there on top. Uh, then comes the United Kingdom, which is kind of a surprise, South Korea. Uh, in any case, uh, we, we must get our act together, I think, in terms of littering. And uh, the efforts through the years have not uh, have, have not worked too well if, if the United States remains the top litterer, na litterer nationally in, in the world. And, and, and the answer is recycling. I mean, there are cities in this country, there are places all over the world where they do a great job of recycling. But these days, like I, I live in the town of Southampton on Eastern Long Island, and uh, they've now limited the plastics that you can put in the, uh, you know, to get recycled. Uh, it used to be any kind of plastic could be dumped at the, uh, it's a recycling center, that's what they call it. Mm -hmm. These days they've limited to, I forgot the numbers, three and four. I mean, on plastic bottles and stuff, there are numbers. And now, uh, it's a restricted amount of, of, of numbers. Uh, my understanding too is even with paper recycling and we dump all our paper in the, uh, the bin at the uh, town recycling center. But my understanding is that the recycling market, the paper has gotten all screwed up. I mean, a, a big issue came a couple of years ago when China and other countries, particularly in Asia, just said no to being repositories for, for waste. Uh, I mean, they said no. And so the US has kind of been stuck with all this waste without the recycling markets of sorts that used to exist. I mean, the US has to really, as I say, uh, get it together in terms of thorough recycling. Uh, it, it's not just a matter of littering too. It's uh, uh, some of these materials, uh, need to be recycled, should be recycled, should be used again. Uh, we should focus on a kind of a circular pattern mm -hmm. of use and then reuse. And we're not really doing that. I, I think also there should be receptacles. Absolutely. I mean, where are people gonna put this stuff? I mean, it's, it's, it's the kind of thing you can't kind of blame the people. I mean, the people who litter, you should absolutely blame. Mm -hmm. People in general, um, before this hits the general waste stream, there should be, and I don't know how it would work out, uh, you know, whether in oh, some places along the street or recycling centers or both, but they, you know, if there would be receptacles like for, oh, at the recycling center uh, here in Southampton, there's a, a place that you can put uh, used oil Nice. Dumped. Uh, and maybe if they could, would have a little station or uh, well, particularly as this uh, plague continues and people, even with the vaccinations, uh, still will have to wear masks. I mean, uh, now there's some easing of the rules, but still apparently masks are going to be here for a year or so more. Yeah. And uh, if, if there's a place that people know about that they can dump this stuff, like a mask after they use it, uh, that might be helpful. There should be awareness right away. 
Uh, and I think what you're doing is good. I think if it's uh, if it's broadcast, if it's written about, it's important for people to to think about uh, the mess that is. Uh, it's all over the place. Mm -hmm. It's it's the role of government to jump in here. I mean, it's a public health issue, and it's a sanitation issue. It's both, uh, and whether it's the village or town or county or state or federal governments, they're all concerned with public health. And uh, they have people who function in the public health sphere. Uh, and sanitation is also, uh, you know, one of the, uh, the responsibilities of various levels of government. So I think government has to step in, uh, consider the situation, figure out the best thing to do. And, um, uh, for starters, education is, is, is critically important. People should realize that they shouldn't drop their, uh, their gloves or their masks uh, along the side of the road and parking lots and mm -hmm. forth. But beyond that, there has to be, uh, there has to be more. I mean, uh, here in Suffolk County, years ago, uh, there was a law enacted to, uh, prevent the uh, release of helium-filled balloons, you know, and, and because of the concern that uh, oh, uh, turtles and other marine life wouldn't be able to distinguish between a balloon in the water and a jellyfish that they might want to eat and so on. And uh, back a, a Suffolk legislator named Lynn Nowick from Smithtown, who is now a town council, town board member in Smithtown, uh, she introduced this uh, this bill based on some kids coming to her office oh. at a comparable bill in Connecticut. And she introduced it. But now this is interesting. Suddenly, out of nowhere, came a group called the Balloon Council. <laughs> and the Balloon Council, look it up, Google it, Balloon Council. They represent balloon manufacturers. And they began lobbying Suffolk County to, uh, uh, to stop this bill. But the Suffolk County Legislature had enough courage and passed the bill. And there's all over the country, there's been um, efforts to uh, stop the release of, uh, of, of lighter than air balloons. Uh, and if you go to the Balloon Council's website, you can see their list of states and other levels of, uh, of government where they fought. Such now, I don't think the issue of PPE is being uh, scattered all over the landscape uh, has uh, oh, people who are, well, people from vested interests who may feel it would uh, affect them, who would try to stop this. Uh, but it just shows you it could be a dicey issue to stop, uh, to stop littering. Uh, nevertheless, uh, in Lynn Novak's bill was passed in Suffolk County. And only recently uh, was the uh, the number of balloons reduced uh, from uh, 25. It was originally more than 25. Now it's like it's like any release of a helium-filled or a lighter-than-air balloon is outlawed in Suffolk County, and there's penalties. So uh, I, you know, I, not to sound uh, oh like Negative we have <laughs> penalties. I mean, voluntary action, education, and all is the preferable route. But maybe there should be penalties for the uh, uh, for, for, for littering with the PPEs, so people will feel maybe 
hey, I can get a $500 fine or whatever if I let my mask uh, just be dropped on the side of the road. According to the Suffolk County Legislator's website, the Suffolk County Legislator's Health Committee Chairperson, William R. Spencer, and Suffolk County Police Chief Stuart Cameron joined a coalition of environmentalists, healthcare professionals, business owners, and a Nassau County Legislator to announce a new law to curb the improper disposal of COVID-19 mask and gloves. Residents across Long Island are utilizing PPE when in public areas where they cannot safely social distance. With a tremendous uptick of PPE littering on our streets, parking lots, even at beaches, officials are now highly concerned that these used PPE could potentially pose a health and safety risk to residents. The bill, which has been approved, is one of the first laws of its kind in the state of New York. As of June 9th, with the general meeting, all 18 legislators voted to approve a local law prohibiting the improper disposal of single or multi-use personal protective equipment in any public location, other than a waste receptacle during a disaster or state of emergency. Violations enforced by Suffolk County Police Department will occur a fine of $250 for the first offense, although warnings may be issued just for first-time violators. And you're listening to Getting to the Root. I'm Alex Whitback. Moving forward, we'll shift gears to focus on Puerto Rico, a place that has been in and out of the news lately, but certainly does not get the attention that it deserves as home to almost 4 million U.S. citizens. We wanted to draw your attention to a groundbreaking new podcast produced by Futuro Studios in collaboration with WNYC Studios, one of the biggest producers of podcasts in the country. The podcast is called La Brega and tells the unheard stories about Puerto Rico, its people on the island, and the diaspora. Our own Mariam Rio spoke recently with one of the producers of the series, journalist Julio Ricardo Varela, and he shares the conversation here. The series is called La Brega, Stories of the Puerto Rican Experience, and it's a co-production of WNYC Studios, which produces uh, some of the best podcasts in the country, as well as Futuro Studios. Futuro Studios uh, distributes and produces Latino USA. This seven-part podcast series uses narrative storytelling and investigative journalism to reflect and reveal how La Brega what that term is, we'll tell you in a second, but how La Brega has defined so many aspects of life in Puerto Rico. The series brings together a great team of Puerto Rican journalists and producers, musicians and artists from the island and in the diaspora. And get this, it's available in both English and in Spanish. Before getting and explaining to you what La Brega actually means, I thought I'd play the opening sequence of the first episode of the podcast. It's called About La Brega, and it's hosted by reporter Alana Casanova Burgess. A few months back, a friend sent me a photo of a water truck in a pothole in Caguas, Puerto Rico. At first, I thought it was photoshopped. The front half of the truck was up in the air, wedged in an enormous crater in the middle of the road. It looked as if the asphalt had opened a gaping mouth and was trying to swallow the truck. 
And then there were the words on the back. Agua potable, potable water. The A of agua obscured by the pothole. The whole thing seemed like a metaphor for the state of things in Puerto Rico. It was a bit on the nose. And then I saw the video. These are the things that happen, whoever was filming said. At the back of the truck, the water was pouring out of the hose into the depths of the hole. It turns out that it was on its way to a neighborhood that had been without water for two weeks, and a broken water pipe was responsible for the sinkhole. There's a lot happening here. A truck filled with water tried to reach a community that had been without it. Then that truck gets swallowed by a hole in the road that was caused by a broken water pipe. And lastly, as if adding insult to injury, the water in the truck was lost to the pothole. Estas son las cosas que pasan. These are the things that happen. You have to deal with that and you have to avoid a pothole any day uh, when you go to work, when you go to the supermarket. Jose Angel Santiago Rios, better known as Cheo Santiago, runs the social media accounts Adopta Un Hoyo, Adopt a Pothole. He reposted the truck video on Instagram, and we spoke over Zoom recently. You go anywhere, you're going to find a pothole. Trust me, trust me, trust me, trust me. I can confirm a lot of Puerto Rican roads are filled with craters. People on the island often joke about it, comparing the roads to the surface of the moon. Ten years ago, Cheo drove over one that rattled more than his axle. It's the reason I wanted to start this podcast with him. Because if I'm going to explain to you what La Brega means, what it means for Puerto Rico, I need an example. And Cheo's Brega tells the story. That was the opening sequence to About La Brega, episode one of the seven-part podcast hosted by reporter Alana Casanova Burgess. The series is called La Brega. Earlier today, I had the opportunity to talk with one of the feature reporters and contributors to the podcast, journalist Julio Ricardo Varela. He's the vice president of new business for Futuro Studios, who, along with WNYC Studios, produced the podcast La Brega. Julio reported on and produced the 2004 Olympics episode about basketball. I first asked him to explain to us what the term La Brega means. It's a, it's a really one of those, like, there's a lot of purely Puerto Rican words. But that one feels like, uh, at least for my generation or even people in the older generation, um, it, it's a word that means like, I don't know, hustling, dealing with life, just getting through it. Some days are better. Some days are worse. Um, you say it and you're like, oh, I get you. All right. You're living. You're living. But you know, it's interesting. I, thinking about when when the title came out, I was asking sort of younger people in my cousins in the family in Puerto Rico, whether it's still a word that's, that, you know, resonates and they, they didn't say no, <laughs> you know, it's definitely a word that is seems to transcend generations. And just from the success of the podcast series, it kind of confirms that it, it was one of those, we knew, we knew, we, we knew the team was doing something really special. We didn't think it was going to be, a series that resonated with so many people, both in Puerto Rico and the diaspora. Uh, we're really proud of the fact that it's getting the attention that it deserves because 
it's about time. I mean, these stories needed to get told and there's so many other Puerto Rican stories and it was a proof of concept and it happened. And the proof is in the pudding, as they say. It's unprecedented in many ways. And I, I just wanted to talk a little bit about the audience that you're targeting because obviously the storytelling is is fascinating and kind of reach to any you know listener of, of radio or podcast. But there's also a, a language that is so directed towards El Boricua, the, the Puerto Rican. Yeah. Um, and so if you could talk a little bit about that, the dual, the, the, the audiences yeah, yeah, that yeah. you're targeting, because it's, it's, yeah. um, it's so unbelievable. You feel like you're hearing your own family talking, <laughs> you know, uh, in all these conversations that you're sharing in this, in this podcast. Yeah. yeah, no, you know, I think that's part of one of the biggest misconceptions that a lot of people have about Puerto Rico and how being bilingual, whatever level you're at, it's really part of your identity. You, you're very, you don't live in a purely Spanish world and you don't, Spanish language world, and you don't live in a purely English language world. And there's a lot of complexities, right? With language and how language and the battle of languages sort of reflects sort of the Puerto Rican experience, uh, particularly since 1898. And, you know, I, I think about throughout my time and I was born in Puerto Rico and I was raised there and then my my parents split my I moved to the Bronx with my Bronx Italian mom when I was like you know seven or eight and you always carry it right you always know and and I always think it's it's fascinating because if you you listen to this bilingual versions they're not translations right they're not they're there's an English version that tells them one story of the of the anthology like so an example, the basketball story I did is in English. Then there's a Spanish version that we did about the basketball story in Spanish. And the creative process in both of them is very different. So yes, we did it originally in English. But then when it came to do the Spanish version, we had a bass, but it was like jazz. Like we started just riffing off like, wait a minute, that's not the way I sound or that's not the way I say things when I talk about basketball in Spanish. Um, so let's use this. Let's use that. So one of the best examples of this is that if, if you think about it, and I'm just using mine and, and granted, you know, Alana Casanova Burgess, the host, Marlon Bishop, my, my colleague at Futuro Studios, the rest of the La Brega, like Avengers, like, you know, the, the, the editors, Luis Trellas, you know, um, Ezequiel, there's so many others and all the reporters. We all kind of played in this dual language space. So for mine, Ezequiel, who was my Spanish, um, my Spanish language producer, you know, we had a base. But then when I was doing that moment in the in the Dream Team victory, where Carlitos Arroyo just sends this amazing pass to Piculín Ortiz right in the second quarter, and it just was like that moment where it's like, wait a minute, Puerto Rico might be doing something here in this game. So we do that in the English, and then when we do it in the Spanish, we had it right. We we had it in the script. And we're tracking it because we do this, you know, a lot of people think we just go off the cuff. This involves writing and editing and tracking and you're doing different takes. And I remember this one specifically with Ezequiel where what we were saying in the script just didn't feel how I felt when I saw that pass. You know what I mean? So what came out of it, the third or fourth take in Spanish, I said, que tronco de pase. Que tronco de pase le dio ese, ese Carlitos. You know, what an amazing pass. I mean, that's a quick translation. 
But that's something that I would say watching basketball in Puerto Rico with my buddies, right? And that's what I mean is that we started playing around, right? And also people that might have been more Spanish language dominant did the same thing. So like, that's the beauty of this. Like we didn't go in and say, well, this has, these are, you know, these are two different pieces of art that complement each other. And that's where I think we, the sweet spot happened. And that's where I, but it, but it also speaks to reality, right? Right. That's the like, Puerto Rican you know experience. Yeah, that's the like, Puerto Rican experience. You yeah. know, I, I've been deliberately, I, and I haven't had a chance to listen to every one of the episodes. I've listened to four of the seven. So, I'm, um, but what I've been doing is listening to one in English, one in Spanish. I'm not listening to both all in Spanish or English. The yeah. Levittown one, for example, I listened to in Spanish and it, I think it works really, really well in Spanish um, yeah. and the storytelling there. But I, I wanted to get a little bit about these stories we don't hear them here in the United mm -hmm. States. And I was mm -hmm. thinking even maybe we can talk a little bit more about the basketball one, because when that happened, you know, the local U.S. coverage was, okay, the U.S. team was upset. It, you know, they, they lost a game, right? But, yeah. but yeah, I don't yeah, think yeah. there was any understanding of what that game meant for every Puerto Rican on the planet. And so okay. I think I, I think yeah. what what comes across is that in, in these story and, and I think every one of the stories, your story was uplifting. I mean, when we listen to the Vieques piece and when you listen to, you know, the Levittown piece, you know, it's, it gets depressing to a certain extent, thinking of what's going on, what is part of that brega. But but these stories are never told in, in the U.S. media. Yeah, this is a perfect example. You know, if we stick to the basketball story for people that don't know, it's like, you know, in 2004 in Athens, the Puerto Rican national basketball team was the first team ever to defeat the dream team since the dream team was formed in 1992 in the Barcelona Olympics in an Olympic game. So it's like, if people understand sort of like what the dream team represented back in the day, right. In 92 and 96, uh, in 2000 and then 2004, like they were, you know, the dominant, you know, the pros, the, the best team in the planet. And here was Puerto Rico with its combination of i would say like cocky vet you know some cocky veterans a really young gun and carlos arroyo who was playing for the utah jazz at the time and they defeated them and you're right i mean i remember because i was up here in massachusetts and i'm you know as i talk about in the podcast i i watched the whole game by myself and it was like one of the greatest days of my life and i proceeded to talk to everyone in my family in puerto rico it's like we had won the you know the biggest prize ever in the history of the world it was it became a national holiday like everyone to this day still talks about it but to many in the audience watching the message was way bigger than that Fue como a los Flort says that it was like carlos was telling the americans Nosotros somos los poderosos, ¿viste? look we're the powerful ones Y ahí empezamos a abrazarnos y empezaron o a sea, lágrimas y todo. Eso fue como una cosa. In the newsroom in San Juan, people started hugging each other. Tears were falling. Yo estaba como, como si fuera un editor novato. ¿Qué, ¿Qué hago ahora? ¿Cómo lo hago? Iram was so shaken up with joy that he says he felt like a brand new journalist, at a loss for how to do his job. The final score? 92 to 73. It's finally happened. The United States 
loses in Olympic play with NBA players. They showed some size in the second half, but dug themselves too big a hole. And an experienced team led by a brilliant performance from Carlos Arroyo put the game away. And it didn't matter that they didn't go further, you know, yeah, lost in the it didn't matter that they got to like the quarterfinals and they lost to Italy. No, 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 no. Everyone, you know, the biggest thing in 2004 was we beat the Americans. We beat the dream team. Because, because the thing is, Puerto Rico did beat the United States in the past, but it, but it was more college players and, and things. So this one's like, we beat the dream team. We beat professional NBA players. This was the cream of the crop. So you're right, right? When you look at it from the Puerto Rican perspective, it's one of the greatest, most historic, joyous days of modern day Puerto Rico. But when you look at it from a, the U.S. perspective, it's like, ah, oh, whatever. Another game. They still got the medal. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they still got they the st- medal. But I do think that that speaks, you know, in a lot of ways, I didn't want to get into the the subtext of this story in the podcast. I wanted to tell the story mm-hmm. because by telling the story, it leads to what you're saying, right? The questions you ask about, okay, I heard this story and now what's the relationship, right? Why didn't, why hasn't Puerto Rico like been noticed? Uh, why is it not quote unquote winning right now? And I'm trying to say like, hey, we've won in the past and we haven't been able to tell this story in a mainstream, right? You know what I mean? It's like, it's always been something in a corner. Yeah, and it comes across when you when you describe the end, at the, towards the end, as they're getting, they're going into the, to, I guess it's the cafeteria or some space and yeah. standing ovations from all the teams, you know, literally, no, no, I, I have no shame in saying that I had goosebumps listening oh, yeah. to, that, to that part. Me too. But but it's tied to the bigger issue, and and I think it's really impressive that the entire series does not refrain from using the term U.S. colony, and for Absolutely. U.S. media and from for mainstream media in the United States, that term's a no-no. Um, so you guys, if you could elaborate a little bit on that, as, as to in every well, episode, it's, it, it's evident of the col- colonial relationship. Well, it's a factual, yeah, it's a factual, yeah. it's a fact, right? I mean, you can't, you know, I think one of the things you look at the history of Puerto Rico. You know, people think when the um, Estados Libre Asociado, ELA, was formed in, like, 1952, that, it, you know, the colony is a colony is a colony. And I think we, you know, Puerto Rican journalists like myself or voices and, and people that have been talking about this have always said that, right? What's fascinating that people don't understand is that that is actually, like, kind of a legal interpretation of, like, what the Supreme Court says. Like, um, you look at the insular cases, like, in the turn of the 20th century that basically use like racism and xenophobia to to establish our relationship with Puerto Rico with the United States Puerto Rico right uh, the Puerto Rican relationship with the United States when in fact it's all based of like we're better than you we're more superior we own you we literally own you you are our property you are our territory and it's not just land right it becomes people it becomes you know it it, it becomes like mentalities right? It becomes us coming after each other, right? It becomes a complicit political class that, that kind of, you know, you know, there's a reason why there's a fiscal control board and a political class in Puerto Rico that made it, that is complicit to it because you, you kind of need that complicit part of all this. And you can see throughout the series. And I, I think of like the Levittown series where people, you know, Alana's great piece about how it was policy. It was policy for Puerto Ricans to leave the island, to be forced out 
like in the forties and the fifties, because in the end, um, it would have made, you know what I mean? Like it would have, it's cheaper for the government. And it's, and it was like, and, and, and cheap labor went to the United States. There's a, you know, I'm in Massachusetts. When I say like, you know, Holyoke, Massachusetts, Springfield, Massachusetts, uh, Lawrence, other places where like, where are all these Puerto Ricans come from? Right. It's like, yeah, like they came because they, because of policy that came out because they needed cheap labor in these textile mills. So what La Bodega does, and you see it in each one of the in each one of the episodes, from you know from Vieques to the carpetas, which is obvious, to the um the the cartas a la deuda, you know the debt car the the letters about the debt, and obviously to the last one, the broken promises of the of the ELA. And even in this case, in Puerto, you know, in, in, in the basketball story that I did, you know, Flor Melendez, the coach, this is war. You know, basketball is war. We don't have an army, so we got to go take it to the basketball court. Like, things like that. It's like, oh, yeah. that's what we want. But but what was interesting is, like, we didn't want to force feed it. We wanted to tell the story so that it's, it's, it's interesting you said it. It's like, because I also think there's this, like, theme in a post-Maria world with Puerto Rico that we're all like downtrodden and like exploited and, you know, everyone's walking with their head down. And, and that's where, you know, there's this problem with how Americans view Puerto Rico. And if La Brega begins to like challenge that a little bit, I actually think it's going to do a lot for, for people to better understand I think what it, it is to be a colony because yeah. <laughs> we are. I, I, I think both, it, yeah, I think it does. I mean, I, you know, I, I look back, back in 1998, I had done a, Back then, we didn't talk about podcasts. It was a radio documentary that I was doing commemorating the 100th anniversary of the invasion of the U.S. Uh, in Guanica and, and its control of Puerto Rico. And uh, I spent a lot of time on Vieques, and I was focusing on the military. This was before David Sanes was killed by the 500 yeah. bomb, before the movement started. I mean, the movement was always there, but before the movement started picking up again after the killing of, of, of Sanes. And... You know, back then there was a, they were talking about how this centennial and, and what's going on here is hopefully a time to reconsider the unsustainability of this relationship. Yeah. But, but 20 plus years have gone by, 23 years have gone by. But I yeah. do think the series La Brega does indeed shine a light on the unsustainability of this relationship. So if, if, if you don't mind talking about, you know, I like the way you put it, that you hope that it's going to have some kind of an impact. Yeah, I think I think one of the problems we've done as Puerto Ricans is that because of the ideological battles and and you know the history of us beating each other up, that we haven't allowed to like let our stories breathe. You know what I mean? And I feel really strongly. I'm so proud to be associated with this series because, um, like Alana says, you know, we were like the Puerto Rican Avengers. You know, and and I have to shout out a couple of people that you know like. Ezequiel, who I mentioned earlier, Ezequiel Rodriguez Adino, Mark Pagan, Victor Manuel Ramos, Diana yeah, Ramos Gutierrez, the, the Center for Investigative Journalism. Said, yeah, uh -huh. Luis Treyes, you know, all, all the reporters. Uh, Luis Treyes is a fantastic editor. But what, what I think was what's, what, you know, and you, you bring up the Vieques case, which I, I actually love the Vieques case, because the Vieques case is a clear example of what happens when we stop looking at each other as like, Oh, you're from Nueva York, or you're you know you're PNP, or you're Azul, or you're you're from Ponce, or you know, do not live here. You don't live here anymore. And Vieques showed that if you just bring Puerto Ricans together for a common cause, look what happens, right? So so we're looking at history as well. So I also think La Brega 
in, in its own way is beginning to look, it's just continuing this history of Puerto Ricans working together. And like I, why I love the basketball story is a perfect example, because I actually think the basketball story is on the same level as like a Vieques, but very differently and hear me out here. Because the first great class of basketball players for Puerto Rico, the ones that made them like put them on the map were New Yorkans, 60s and 70s. So think about that, right? When New Yorkans are, are, are told in Puerto Rico, Yo, well, you're not from here, you live, you're back in New York, you're New Yorkan. It's like the word New Yorkan in Puerto Rico is used as like almost like derogatory. But then when you think about like that initial class of players like Raymond Dalmau, Hector Blondet, Neftali, all those, all those players that put Puerto Rico on the map that almost beat the United States, you know, in 1979 at Panamericanos and Bobby Knight being the evil American that he is, like how classic, you know, the colonial overlord, Bobby Knight. But then you see them sow the seeds, right? So they pass the baton to the Piculin Ortizes of the world, to the Carlos Arroyos of the world, to, you know, the Larry Ayusos of the world. And that second wave of, of Puerto Rican basketball, even though it had some from outside of Puerto Rico, was literally like the kids that grew up watching the New York Ricans play, right? And so this is what happens when we start looking at ourselves as Puerto Ricans and great things happen. And I just sit here and I'm like, we need to do more of it. I've always been pretty consistent with that. You know, anyone who follows me on Twitter who knows that I have, you know, I have plenty of takes on this. And I think learning how we can sort of overcome our own colonial insularism, insularismo, to quote Zeno Gandia, one of my favorite books of all time that talks about the Puerto Rican colonial mind that we really do, we really can do a lot if we just put our minds to it. And I think La Brega is exactly an example of that as well. Because we're like, we're going to create our own lane. And it's that's, a Puerto Rican series and let's do it. So that's a good point. Maybe we could wrap up with this. I know we've already gone over the time, but, um, you know, obviously the new technology, new distribution, podcasting, I mean, you've been doing this for a while. It allows this kind of space to open up for a yeah. seven-part, extraordinary, unbelievable series of, of beautiful stories and, and compelling narratives um, that in the past we didn't have, right? We didn't have access to. Yeah. Um, um, but there's also a danger, as we've seen in other examples with television and commercial television, et cetera, where it still becomes insular because it's not yep. hitting the, the people that should probably perhaps be listening. Obviously, it's for us. It's for the yeah. community, but it's also, I think, other people have to hear it. So... How do you balance that? I mean, I know you're on a lot of fronts, Latino Rebels and a lot of other spaces, but yeah. how, do you, how do you get to, to those folks who really need to hear these stories? You know, it's interesting because the way we do it and, and the way I've always done it, and I'm very fortunate to be part of Futuro Media, which is Mariana Jose's like nonprofit independent uh, journalism company based in Harlem. Um, that we, yeah, that we just decide to tell our stories authentically that we have already made the decision that there is a demand for this. Okay. So we've already, we're, we're already operating from a position of we're driving this, right. We're going to create our own lane, right. Because media is so white, mainstream media is so white for us to go to like places where, where we're just like, Hey, can you do a Puerto Rico series for us? Like it would take years. So we've decided we've made the choice consciously to be like, we're not going to wait. This is what we do. You know, Maria is the perfect example. She never waited. I created Latino Rebels. Like, people don't wait. But what's interesting now 
because it's all about raise, keeping the bar raised and high quality. And there's a lot of, you know, a lot of things, even in the example of La Brega, that have defined me as a reporter in the, in the principles of how I want to talk about Puerto Rico. I just now have a platform and I've been given an opportunity, blessed to be part of this team, to just be like, yep, now you can go tell your story on a bigger platform, you know, with WNYC Studios, Fudo Studios. There's a belief. And what's interesting is because if you do it right, and if you do it with like real authenticity and no intention to build, let's just tell really damn good stories. These stories are universal in a lot of ways. And I'm incredibly proud of the fact that La Brega, you know, is in the top 100, top 50. Um, and you see like, you know, La Brega next to, you know, the office girls from like the office, you know, and yeah. that's where you start. That's where things start changing, right? When you can start creating your own lanes and putting them in, in the existing infrastructure to kind of challenge or disrupt the notions where, you know, if someone's like on an Apple podcast and goes new and noteworthy and goes, what is this La Brega thing? What is this? Boom. We get you. For me, basketball is universal. Right. You know, I, I love this story because I've always lived in these both worlds. And I always live in the fact that like this has appeal. You know what I mean? It's like, this is an ESPN story, if you really think about it. But you never did a 30 for 30. So like, I'm going to do it with my <laughs> producer. And, and and so it's a great story. So you know what I'm saying? It's like, so it's a question of like staying true to what you do, not settling. And that's the part where it's really hard because it's so tempting to just kind of be like, we want to like just be mainstream. No, the mainstream is going to come to us. We are, you know, there's going to be a time where if you blink, you're going to be like, what's up? Wait, what happened here? And that's what I thats what I think is so cool about this. That was Julio Ricardo Varela, the vice president of new business for Futuro Studios, who along with WNYC Studios produced the podcast La Brega, the seven-part series, which now can be found online. And check it out. It's a great series. Julio reported on and produced the 2004 Olympics episode about basketball in Puerto Rico. He's the founder of LatinoRebels.com, which is a great resource, by the way, for news and commentary and culture about the Latino experience. Um, so check that out. This piece was produced and edited by Mario Murillo. Next week on Getting to the Root, Katrina speaks with the president of Operation Splash, discussing how local residents and the organization is taking matters into their own hands to combat litter from Montauk to the South Shore. Also, hear from new contributor Jake April in the first part of an ongoing series where he speaks with Jacob Pacheco, an adaptive surfer whose goal is to make the world more inclusive for people with disabilities. I'm Alexandra Whitbeck, and this has been Getting to the Root.